I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 39 and 40. Uh, it is uh, through no intentional planning on our own that one of the narratives today that we'll be talking about in Genesis has to do with a prison scene. Uh, so I wish I could, I could claim credit for that, but uh, the Lord was active in that. It's been two weeks since we've looked at uh, Genesis and three weeks since we've considered the Joseph story. Uh, that's because last week, of course, we had Paul Campbell here and he uh, revealed to us what God is doing out in Salt Lake City, uh, Utah, and uh, we're thankful for that. And then the week before that, we saw a story within a story. Uh, we saw the Judah story, the story of Joseph's older brother, one chapter devoted to him, Judah's story within the greater Joseph story from Genesis uh, 37 through 50. And a few weeks ago, we saw that Judas, Judah was callous, uh, he was corrupt, he was spiritually blinded, and he was immoral with a woman that he found out later was his, uh, step, or was his stepdaughter, uh, uh, or I, I should say his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Uh, yet uh, later in the story, if you remember, Judah admits that she has been more righteous than he was, and, uh, and then uh, by God's good grace, I think he's transformed. Uh, so as you go throughout the rest of Genesis, you will see uh, he uh, begins uh, doing what's appropriate. Well, after Judah's story, uh, we get back to Joseph's story, and in Genesis 39 through 41, we come to the next major part of the story where uh, Moses will tell us how uh, Joseph goes from a pit um, in the middle of a field to second in charge in Egypt. And uh, this is a very interesting story. Uh, actually, three stories make up this digression or progression, you should say. Um, these three stories take place in three locations. Uh, if you write in your Bible next to Genesis 39, you could write down Potiphar's house. Next to Genesis 40, you could write down King's prison. And then next to Genesis 41, you could write down Pharaoh's court. So three stories in three locations that... Uh, combined together to portray how Joseph goes from the pit to second in charge in Pharaoh's court. It's just a brief account that covers about 15 years in Joseph's life. And uh, so this is what Moses felt was important for us to see from this. As we go through the stories today, uh, we'll uh, notice the emphasis of Moses, and we'll see that he puts it on God's presence in Joseph's daily experiences. God's presence in daily experiences. Has God seemed near you this week? Has God seemed far away from you this week? I can't help but think of some of the conversations I've had with some of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ this week. I think of uh, one man who is swamped at work, overwhelmed with much work, and it's my prayer for him all week that he feels and knows God's presence with him as he commits himself to do the work. I think also of a sister in Christ who is facing crushing pressure in her life circumstances. I pray for her too, that God would be near her and love her and remind her of his abiding presence. How about you? Do you know God is with you? 
want to look at two chapters, two stories, uh, to remind us that God is always with us in the ups and downs of life. Uh, The first story or scene takes place in Potiphar's house. It's Genesis 39, verses 1 through 20. And Joseph's time in Potiphar's house starts out with a blessing. Look at verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and all that uh, the Lord caused, or, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Sounds like a pretty good deal for Potiphar uh, so far. Joseph goes down to Egypt. He gets to work with the captain of Pharaoh's guard, Potiphar. In a way, this is a form of God's grace for him. Things could have been worse. He could have been out in a field. He could have been doing some very menial work. Think like the pyramids, for instance. <laughs> could have been doing some, some things far worse, but now he's in charge in the home of Potiphar over all that he has. And God's blessing is upon him, although he is a slave and has a master. Okay. We can see his blessing in many important phrases that Moses uses that stick out here, and I'll just bring them to your attention. I don't really have to say much about them. I'll just bring them to your attention. Uh, first, he says in verse 2, and then again in verse 3, that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him, so much so that Potiphar realizes that the Lord is with him. He also tells him in the middle of verse 2, and then again in verse 3, that he, he tells us that Joseph became a successful man. He succeeded in everything that he did. We learn as well that he found favor or grace in the eyes of Potiphar in verse 4, and then finally we learn twice that the Lord blessed Uh, the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake, uh, in verse 4 and 5. And so it's evident that God blesses Joseph here. Though he remains a slave with a master, things could be worse. He's in charge of everything in uh, Potiphar's house. Okay? And the very next phrase in the text reveals a final blessing of sorts for him, uh, in verse 6, which becomes a problem. Look at the end of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now this is an interesting expression. Handsome in form and experience, or, uh, and uh, appearance. This phrase is only used one other time in all the Bible. And it is used to describe Joseph's mother, Rachel, who was stunningly beautiful. She was beautiful in form and appearance. Good looks, evidently, ran in the family. 
I guess this can't be true of all of us. Only a few of us, right, uh, can identify uh, with this blessing. It could be translated, he literally had a handsome face and figure. He had it all, physically. Well, that blessing brings temptation in verses 6b through 7. So let's keep reading. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as soon as he spoke to, and, uh, and as she spoke to Joseph day by day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Okay. So it's in this part of the story, the temptation, we're introduced to another person. This person's name is Potiphar's wife. <laughs> That's all we know uh, of her name. She is the villain. And what we learn about her is she looks longingly on the young man Joseph. He's attractive. He's in his early to mid-20s. And so she speaks to him. In the original, she says two words. It's translated three words in English, lie with me. These words are terse and direct and express her lust bluntly. Like, kind of like animal bluntness here. Well, Joseph meets her brash request with a long speech. She has two words. I didn't count up how many words he has, but he has a whole lot of words here where he expresses to her that he won't even consider this for a few reasons. He won't consider it because first Potiphar trusts him with everything. He will not betray his trust. He knows this would hurt Potiphar, her husband, significantly, so he will not engage in this. Reminds me of how Paul challenges us believers in the church today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul argues against adultery with your sister in Christ because you would be defrauding your brother. He says that no one go beyond and transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. May I say colonial. May this never be true of us. We would commit adultery with our brother or sister's spouse. Here he says, I can't do this because Potiphar trusts me with everything. And then, secondly, Joseph can't do this because it's wicked. And it's a sin against God. And I wonder if we see immoral sin this way. We need to remember it's wicked and it is a sin against God. Perhaps the temptation for you is looking at immoral images or cultivating lustful meditations and you think something like this, what would hurt? It's a private sin. No one would ever know. 
So you make allowances and excuses for your lustful indulgence, and you do not see it as wickedness and a sin against God. You think everyone is doing it, it's no big deal, it's not a problem, but that's not how Joseph saw a moral sin. It was great wickedness. It was a sin against God. By the way, this is also a big deal to Jesus, who says that a man who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But Potiphar's wife does not like to take no for an answer. Day after day, the text says in verse 10, she appeals to him, but he would not lie beside her or be with her. Two important expressions there, be with her means to have sexual relationships with her, but lie beside her, I'm intrigued by that. And I think one commentator was right when he commented on that expression, lie beside her. He said, Potiphar's wife perhaps moderates her pleas. Won't he just sleep beside her? Even that act of companionship would be a comfort to her. Can you imagine how how sinister this wicked woman is? Well, if you won't lie with me, won't you lie beside me? Nothing will happen. Joseph will not submit to these temptations at all, and his refusals then set him up for a trap. Look with me at verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard, uh, as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled away and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. This is why I call the trap. In her determination, Potiphar's wife uh, uh, is going to take one last attempt here. She will get what she wants or Joseph will pay the price. And so when no one else is present in the home, she grabs him tightly by his garment and says those two words again, lie with me. In the original. Which, by the way, we should take a note to see it's when no one else is there. I'm mindful uh, several years ago now, the former vice president uh, talked about a policy he had with women. He would not meet alone with a woman. I know in our culture that was just perceived as being like the most outlandish thing in the whole world. But that's when these sort of things happen. When a man is alone, he's alone with. Potiphar's wife. While she's clutching him so tightly, the only way out was for him to leave his garment with her and get out of the house. So he runs. I think he follows the best scriptural approach at that point. I think of Paul's counsel to Timothy that comes much later about youthful lust. He says, flee youthful lust. Run. 
That's what we should do when we feel strong temptations like this. Get out of that situation. Go to accountability. Go to a transparent location. But I want you to notice how Moses describes where Joseph left his garment. Did you see that? In verses 12 and 13, he says it twice so we don't miss it. He left his garment in her hand. Okay, and then notice what she does after he flees in verse 14. She summons all of the men of her house together and she gives a long speech. So I'm kind of proud of her. More than two words this time. Except what she says is a false report. In her trap, she says that Joseph had tried to rape her, but that she cried out and he ran away. And she tells him that Joseph was in such a hurry that he left his garment beside her. Not in her hand, clutching, but beside her. You see that in the text as well, and she does this twice too. It's a subtle and important difference from what the Bible says actually happened. She implies that Joseph had taken off his garment and was preparing to rape her, but then fled away without it when she screams. And then in verse 16, we learn that she kept Joseph's garment laying next to her in the same location until her husband came home. So intriguing to me. What, what a description. We don't even know how long this was. He stays in the same plot, leaves, leaves the, the garment just laying there, sets the trap again. Then when her husband comes home, gives a false report. When he arrives, she belittles and lies about Joseph, and she even blames her husband. She said, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us. This false report stirs Potiphar, and we're going to see what he does in a second. But before we do that, I just want to take a moment and just tell you something that struck me this week about this part of the text. You know, at this point in the text, Potiphar's wife drops off the scene of salvation history. And man, I have a whole lot of questions about her. Whatever happened to her? Did God ever punish her because of this? Was she ever found out? Moses isn't interested in telling us the answer. Because Moses is telling us how Joseph goes from a pit in Egypt to second in Pharaoh's house. And this part of the story is an important piece to tell you how God works. Joseph, before he's exalted, he will have to take several steps down. Descent, descent, descent. Now, Joseph's ascent comes through a few preliminary steps downward. You think, how much worse could it get for him? He's a slave in a foreign country, but look at verses 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Potiphar was angry at the report. The way it's stated, he might have been angry because of the fact that his wife was accusing him in all of this. She's blaming him. Regardless, he sends Joseph into the king's prison, the prison of Pharaoh. The word prison is an interesting word. It, in Hebrew, it could be translated roundness, perhaps the first roundhouse sort of 
prison. This is a fortress or a dungeon-like place, not an ordinary prison. A stronghold reserved for Pharaoh's prisoners. It certainly doesn't look like God is going to lift Joseph up the second in importance in the land. He's going the wrong direction, right? He was enslaved in Potiphar's home, and now he's in prison. I think it's important for us to observe something here, one application before we go to the second story. You know, there are no guarantees in our Christian experience if we do the right thing that we will be rewarded. Speaking practically, for instance, your boss might make demands out of you at work to fudge the books, to record something in error so that he gains a profit or pays less taxes or something like that, and you might say, no, I can't do that. My conscience won't allow me to do that. And you might not get promoted. You might get fired for it. But men and women, if we do the right thing and trouble comes out of it, we can rest assured that God has big sovereign purposes and designs in our trouble. It's never for nothing. I think one of the values of these chapters, these years in Joseph's life, these 15 years or so, encourage us to take the long look at what God is doing in our lives. And so may it never be that we jump to conclusions in the midst of a trial or difficulty, conclusions like God is not at work here. May it not be true of us that we would say that God does not hear us or he is not good or he's not listening to our prayers. Now, as we move from this story, things do get worse. Uh, He goes to the second scene, um, verses 21 through the end of chapter 40, and I've worked on making this part go a little bit quicker. Scene number two goes from blessing to being forgotten, and this all takes place in the king's prison or dungeon. Again, it starts with blessing. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, keep your attention on the biblical text for a second. I just want to show you all the parallels to the beginning of the last story. Did you pick up on them? Okay, things like Joseph experiences favor in verse 21. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 39 when he was in Potiphar's home. He gets favor here from the keeper of the prison. He is put in charge two times in this text and two times at the beginning of the last story. He's put in charge. He succeeds. That's a word we've heard before. And then we also hear this expression, the Lord was with him. As a matter of fact, twice at the beginning of this story and at the beginning of the last story, we saw the Lord was with him. Look in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Look at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. And then look at the middle of verse 23. Because the Lord was with him. 
Even in his distress, God is there. This is true for him, it's true for us as well. There are all kinds of texts I could go to to remind you of the abiding presence of God for us. I think of the way that the author of Hebrews closes out his book in Hebrews 13 when he says, uh, from God, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can't help but think of the end of Matthew's gospel when he's giving the great commission from Jesus. In Matthew 28 and verse 20, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or where God tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As God was with uh, Joseph, uh, he will be with us. We have his abiding presence through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He is always there with us. So Joseph is in prison here. And he experiences God's blessing, the Lord's with them. That leads to an opportunity. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, their, uh, against their Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in prison in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to him in custody, or came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. You might not immediately see how this is an opportunity. It just seems like more work for, for Joseph, two more prisoners to care for. But these two prisoners were formerly very important men. The cupbearer and baker. We, we don't typically think of these positions as being very high in society, but they were during this time, especially for the Pharaoh, when I'm sure there were a lot of different kinds of people trying to poison them. There were high officials, the cupbearer and the baker for Pharaoh. Pharaoh trusted his life to them. Yet they fell into disfavor for some reason, and they're in prison. And after some time, these men both have dreams and they're discouraged because there's no one there to interpret them. Pharaoh reminds them that dreams are, that's the jurisdiction of God. And so they tell them their dreams. We won't read this next part, but one after another, they tell them their dreams. The cupbearer explains that he saw a vine with three branches and grapes that appeared on the vine, and he was squeezing grapes into Pharaoh's cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph explains the three branches represent three days, and three days he will be lifted up by Pharaoh. He'll return to his position. He'll be squeezing grape into a cup in Pharaoh's hand to give him drink again. That emboldens the baker to tell him uh, his dream. The baker says that he saw three baskets, uh, three cake baskets on his head that were filled with food and that birds came and ate food out of the uppermost basket. So Joseph explains that the three basket equals three days 
in three days Pharaoh will come and kill him. That's an interesting way to say it. He, he will lift his head up too. Okay. Both people, uh, he will lift the head up for. Okay. But, but the baker, he will lift his head, and then there's a the word added, off, which doesn't sound very good. He's going to lift your head too, off, and then you're going to be hanged or impaled on a tree. We don't know if Pharaoh had received a report in the meanwhile about the baker and the cupbearer. Had Pharaoh done some research to find out who was actually the one who was trying to poison him? We don't know. Maybe that's why the baker isn't quick to give his dream to Joseph, because he's guilty. Regardless, uh, I want you to see how Joseph appeals to the cupbearer who is soon to be released. Look at verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. That's one way to describe it, a house. For I indeed, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. That's how he describes the dungeon, this pit. It's like the pit back in Genesis 37. Joseph understands that the full reinstatement of the cupbearer is an opportunity for him. His release is possible, so he explains, I've done nothing to be in here. I'm incarcerated, but I'm innocent. And he knows that the cupbearer is his ticket out of prison. And so all he has to do is wait three days, let this man get out there, this powerful man, and then he'll pull some strings and he'll be released. That comes to the fulfillment of the dreams, verses 20 through 22. Look there. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So it all happens. This is, Joseph says it will. Three days later on Pharaoh's birthday, the cupbearer is released and the baker's killed. I'm sure Joseph is waiting in anticipation. If he had lost hope before, now he's got a powerful official indebted to him. So what's going to happen? Look at the last verse. Verse 23. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Did not remember him, but forgot him. The story ends. Here, Joseph has been so faithful. He ran from the temptation, and he's fulfilled all of his duties in the pit so well. And the cupbearer did not remember. He was forgotten. It's an awful thing to be forgotten. Have you ever been forgotten before? I have perhaps too many times. Someone forgot who you were. You know, the popular guy and, or girl in high school, and you have a reunion, and you go back, and you remember them, and they look at you like, I've got no idea who this person is. Perhaps as a child, you were forgotten in some location. Your parents say they love you, but 
forgot you at church, of all places. Well, I'm sure it wasn't for two years. Look at verse, chapter 41, verse 1, after two whole years. He's forgotten. Things keep getting worse for him and will not get better for two full years. Perhaps Joseph lays down every night in those years and he asks questions like the psalmist did. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? But men and women, can I tell you this? God did not forget Joseph. God is using these moments in Joseph's lowest valleys to deliver him and to exalt him one day. It's not yet time, but it's coming. He will be second in charge. Perhaps you're discouraged because things just keep getting worse for you. May the example of Joseph encourage you. Moses wanted to encourage his original readers they were, out, they were still outside of the land of promise. All they knew was wilderness. He wanted to encourage that generation of Israelite people, although they're not experiencing the, the blessing or the fulfillment of the land promises and the promises of rest, they can know and experience the promise of God's presence. He is with you. If Joseph's example doesn't encourage you this morning, may the example of Jesus... I'd call the greater Joseph, encourage you. Jesus was tempted time and time and time again, yet he never sinned. The greater Joseph. Jesus endured many troubles, much persecution, many false accusations, battering and bruising, and ultimately uh, murder as he fulfilled God's will. There's perhaps no better description of this than what Paul says in Philippians 2 in verse 5. And he says, have this mind among you that was also in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus kept within the will of God, suffering for unrighteous purposes. He kept descending, 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 descending. And then one day, one day, God exalted him, lifted him up, and gave him a name that's above every name, Lord, Sovereign. I love how C.S. Lewis described this. I gave this to you five years ago. Do you remember? Probably not. C.S. Lewis captured the mission of Jesus this way, from descension to ascension. He said, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. 
One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must disappear under, or he, he must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or Lewis says, one may think of a diver glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like regions of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. To be the redemption of mankind. And so when God asks us to endure the pit and the difficulties, might we remember Jesus? And might we remember that one day God will exalt us too? Might you take the long look to see that the events of your daily experience are working in God's sovereign designs for your life? One day we'll know that not one tear is wasted with God. That not one tear is without its purposes in our lives. And not one drop of sweat is outside of his plans to use us and to change us into the image of Jesus Christ for his own glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Joseph I thank you for how you, through your grace, enabled him to remain strong. He was faithful. Two difficult locations. But I thank you more importantly for Jesus, who was faithful in every, every location, every opportunity he withstood. He was falsely accused. He was slandered. He was executed for our sins. And so, Father, as we pass through our own challenging times, may these models uh, encourage us. May we recognize and know that you are always with us. That you never leave us. Because you are there with us. We will not be moved. Lord, help us to remember that you're with us in the ups and downs of life. In Jesus' name, amen.